6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of James, chapter 5. Interesting that David also was troubled by the prosperity of the wicked. We might turn to Psalm 37. Oh, let's just pick up by verse 35. David says, I have seen the wicked in great power, spreading himself like a green bay tree. Yet he passed away, and lo, he was not. Yea, I sought him, but could not be found. It's interesting, the answer to this really is um, verse 7. David says, Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not thyself because of him who prospereth in his way, because of the man who bringeth wicked devices to pass. It's amazing. The same Habakkuk in the Old Testament has the same burden. Why do the wicked prosper? And uh, I encourage you to, to, uh, to deal with it. If you have an eschatology that's a pre-trib point of view, which is the one I happen to share, and that's not a problem. If there's some people here that are post-trib, it's not a problem. We'll explain it to you on the way up. It's not an issue. <laughs> um, but there is a difference in the walk. Barnhouse used to kid Walter Martin when he came to work. Oh, he say, the sad day, sad day, Jesus can't come back today. Because he knew that Walter leaned to a post-trip view, and, and uh, that implies there's seven years of history that has to precede the second coming, which is, we think, contrary to Scripture. Clearly, Christ taught us, the New Testament teaches the doctrine of eminence. He could come at any moment. And uh, that's why we believe there's a very big distinction between the rapture and the second coming. He comes back twice, once for the church, once for Israel. But the point is, the clear teaching of the New Testament, that he can come at any moment, is one of the most galvanizing aspects of the Scripture. You and I have the privilege uh, to live our lives in a moment-by-moment expectancy. Boy, does that make decisions easier. That makes decisions easier. Big danger to allow yourself to think, gee, it, it, I think it's going to be a few years off. For in such a day, hours ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. Anyway, the Christian, of course, is analogous here to a farmer, sensitive to the seasons, the sowing, watering, and so forth. Verse 8, Be ye also patient... Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. James also points to the eminence of Jesus' return as a motivator for their actions. And, of course, the secret to patience of the farmer is that the harvest he's anticipating is worth waiting for. And the secret you and I have is that our harvest is also worth waiting for. Verse 9, Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. When you're impatient with people, that betrays an impatience with God. And you don't want to be impatient with God. <laughs> We're supposed to put our sickles in for the harvest. I don't know why Christians use their sickles on each other all the time. But let's move on, verse 10. Now he's going to, uh, James is going to shift to the prophets. Take my brethren the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for the example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. Jesus also used the example of the prophets as an example of victory over persecution. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, 11, and 12. He deals, he points to the persecution of the prophets. You and I, in 2 Timothy 3, among other places, are promised persecution. The Lord was obedient. What did it lead to him? To the cross. It led him to the cross. 
You, you can go through example after example. Elijah announced to wicked King Ahab that there would be a drought for three and a half years. And he, he had to suffer that drought too. Now he got fed by ravens and things, but the point is we'll talk a little bit more about it. James is going to bring this up a little later. But it's interesting that the prophets also suffered not just at the hands of the unbelievers, but also the believers. They suffered at the hands of believers too. So why are we surprised? Jeremiah was arrested as a traitor and thrown in, uh, into an abandoned well to die. And that was by his own people. Ezekiel and Daniel also had their share of hardships, but God, of course, delivered them. The New Testament presents the persecution of the prophets as proverbial. And I have a list of 11 examples of this that I'll spare you, but we'll just take one because it's a sample in Hebrews 11. Turn to the epistle to the Hebrews. Uh, chapter 11, we have a couple of a quick glimpses there. After going through uh, Adam and Noah and Abraham and Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Rahab, he gets to verse 32. And what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, of Barak, of Samson, of Jephthah, of David, and of Samuel, and of the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, famine, uh, became valiant in, uh, in flight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Uh, women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, they were tested, were slain without the sword, I mean, with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And these all, having received witness through faith, received not the promise, God having provided something better thing for us, that they without us should not be made Perfect. In other words, that's a whole other point there. I'll go on. Verse 11 of James. James continues, Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. Why do people who proclaim the Lord endure difficult trials? Well, one suggestion is so that their lives can back up their messages. That's what God's interest in. Enduring counts. And I think many obscure heroes will receive the rewards, and his rewards he brings with them. And one way we get a feeling for this is to spend more time in the Bible, because it's interesting how the Bible, in the New Testament and Old, uses these, this history, these narratives, as examples for our learning. And it's interesting, too, <laughs> the Lord ministered to me, you know, Job had three friends. <laughs> with friends like that, you don't need enemies, you know. As I read Job, I, I keep wondering if these guys, these three friends, uh, published newsletters or had websites, you know, I, I really wonder. And of course the friends were wrong and God took up the cause. Uh, he had no cause against Job and God rebuked his friends ultimately for telling that about uh, Job. What Job, what we have that Job didn't have is the perspective. We are treated in chapter one to the dialogue between Satan and God. So as we watch the narrative, we know what's going on. Job didn't have the benefit of that discussion. He just trusted God. Mm, boy. And, of course, God never wastes the suffering of his saints. Job himself met God even in a deeper way, as he describes in chapter 42. The impatient Christian is a weapon in Satan's hands. And Moses' impatience robbed him of his opportunity to enter the promised land. And Abraham's impatience 
led to the birth of Ishmael. And look what's derived from that. Peter's impatience in the garden almost made him a murderer. When Jesus healed the ear of the high priest's servant, he was saving Peter's life. Paul was the thorn of the flesh. My grace is sufficient for thee and so forth. So you and I are not a robot caught in the jaws of fate. We're a child of God and uh, we're part of his profound and wonderful plan. It's up to us to, be, to, to trust him. That's really all he wants to do is to trust us. Now from here, uh, James starts talking about straight talk. As I think you all recognize by reading any daily paper, that honesty is becoming a very rare commodity in our country. Perjury under solemn oath is epidemic. In our courts, in the solemn vows of marriage, and the assertions of the highest office of the land. Romans 3.13 says their tongues practice deceit. And uh, we know from Leviticus 19.12 and Numbers 32 and Deuteronomy 23.21 that breaking vows is forbidden. The scripture never asks you to take a vow, but if you take it, it expects you to keep it. And that's very, very clear in the Torah and elsewhere. Verse 12, But above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea and your nay nay, lest ye fall into condemnation. The same thing that Jesus said in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. When Peter was pouring out his oaths that night after Gethsemane, uh, Matthew 26, um, he was giving evidence that his character was still in need of transformation. I'm always reminded by this yay, yay, nay, nay passage. I was a, an executive getting briefed by the Bell Labs research people on their advanced projects. In those days, the telephone company was very much an analog outfit, and the head of the digital group, which was sort of a maverick group within the organization, says in a complex organization, it's very important to have a very clear mandate. And the digital communication people, this is way back, this was many years ago, he said, uh, our mandate, we take our mandate from uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 34, where the Lord himself says, let your communication be yay, yay, or nay, nay, whatsoever, more than these is of evil. And that was his point, it's digital, not analog. And of course he's being facetious, but as an engineer you may not follow that. But anyway, I've always, I, always, I always think of that uh, as a, um, an amusing play on words. But anyway, there are, however, by the way, some people say, gee, we shouldn't take oaths at all. In a civil proceeding, you certainly can. You can use the Lord as his example because before Caiaphas in Matthew 26, he takes an oath. I adjure thee by the living God, tell us, you know, and so forth. And he does. Paul calls God as a witness in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 23, and also Romans 1, chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. So they're permitted, although not encouraged. But in, in a court of law, to take an oath is, is scripturally sound, although you can affirm thanks to some change in regulations. From here, well, we're going to make it, we're going to make it. Um, James turns to prayer. A little while ago, a few, few lessons ago, we noticed that James spent a lot of time on the misuse of the tongue. He talked a lot about the unruly, unruly member called the tongue. On the negative side, gossip and all that sort of thing. What's the, on the positive side, what is the highest use of your tongue? Prayer. Well, glorifying God in general, but prayer specifically, you betcha. Proclaiming His Word and then prayer. And uh, seven times in the coming section, he's going to mention prayer. And the first thing he talks about is prayer for the suffering. Verse 13, is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Now, afflicted, actually, the Greek means suffering in difficult circumstances. We know we're not supposed to grumble. He mentioned that in verse 9 of this chapter. And prayer can give us the grace to endure troubles and to use them to glorify God. If you're in trouble, what's the first thing you should do is pray. To remove the trouble, no. That you might perform 
under the condition of trouble that will glorify God. That's, that may be why the trouble is there. Give you an opportunity for witness. God alone can transform troubles into triumphs. He can turn weakness into strength. There's a lot of verses. I'll spare that right now. But remember, Jesus prayed in Gethsemane three times for the cup to be removed, and it was not. So it may be in God's plan to have you go through with whatever is facing you. What you should be praying for is to be equipped to do that to God's glory. And a mature Christian knows that God is able to give songs in the night, as it says in Job 35.10. God did this for Paul and Silas when they were in the Philippian jail, if you recall, in Acts chapter 16. Might just comment a little bit about the believer's praise. The believer's praise should be intelligent and not just mouthing words. I uh, often, whenever I share a platform with Dave Hunt, uh, he often mumbles to me. He's very discouraged about some some of the modern music. He calls it 7-Eleven music. Seven words repeated 11 times. And, uh, And he loves to articulate the lyrics of some of the grand old hymns that really express the gospel, deep spiritual truths. Modern music didn't bother me much since until Dave made that remark. Now every time I listen, hey, he's right. You know? uh, so, in any case, it should come from the heart. Ephesians five nineteen, motivated by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians five eighteen, and based, of course, on the Word of God. Verse fourteen, praying for the sick. Are there any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. This is the only prescription for this in the Scripture. You know that? And by the way, just to give you some. Turn of views here. There are two Greek words that are translated anoint. One is krio, which is it's where it's anointed in the religious sense. It's from this that we get the anointed one. Christ comes from that same root, the word for Christos, or the anointed one. It only appears five times in the New Testament, which is the anointing of Christ by the Father with the Holy Spirit. The other word is uh, aleipho, which is a Greek medicinal term. Uh, in Matthew 6.17, it's to prepare oneself. It could be translated massaging, to rub with oil, but in, in the medicinal sense. And so some scholars make a big point of this. They say what James is really talking about here isn't necessarily anointing in the, in the ecclesiastical sense, it's anointing in the medicinal sense. But, uh, uh, but here we're dealing with the sovereignty of God, and, and scholars are divided. I, don't want to, I just want to mention that in passing. But the real issue about healing is a really cruel hoax by those that would teach that uh, God heals in every case. That's God's, God's not, His desire is that you not be ill. And uh, that's a very, that is uh, denying both scripture and experience. Paul had to leave Trophimus uh, sick uh, in Miletus in uh, 2 Timothy 4.20. Epaphroditus, his beloved friend, was ill and almost died in Philippians 2.27. Paul prayed three times for his own removal of the thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12 and had to endure it until the end. It is an unscriptural and also kind of experience to have, it's a cruel hoax on the family and friends of someone who's sick to argue that God didn't intend them to be, you know, that the so-called uh, word of faith thing is tragic. But let's move on. And uh, notice also that praying here should be plural, plural, elders. Whenever someone does come up to me for prayer for illness or some medical kind of thing, I always get a plurality of elders. Why? So if it, the Lord's will to heal that person, it's clearly the Lord and not some unique gift. You follow what I'm saying? And so uh, we always have a body of elders to do that. And sometimes God will do incredible miracles. I can tell you of some of those right within our own staff. But there's also cases where he, it's God's will to, he has another purpose in the whole situation. Far be it from us to prejudge that. 
What we, our prayer should be is that uh, if it be His will to provide the healing and what have you, comfort the family. But by all means, let whatever is happening magnify His name. Show Himself strong. Verse 15. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. The Lord will raise them up. And if He hath committed any sins, they shall be forgiven Him. There is the undertone here for several reasons that the person that He's dealing with here uh, is also guilty of sin. That doesn't mean we can't generally apply it, but you should understand if you study this exegetically very carefully, there's that undertone. Anyway, the prayer of faith he speaks of here in verse 15 is offered when we know the will of God. The prayer of faith implies you are, you can do that when we know the will of God. This is certainly a case when, when the sickness is a result of continuing in sin. And that's what the Greek implies here in the grammar. But in any case, always remember the Christians borrow soap. 1 John 1 9. If we confess our sins, he, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we can always claim that. And we never sin alone. It always affects others. In fact, any sin affects the whole church. But then the prayer of the righteous. It's interesting, in the 4th century, one of the greatest preachers in the church, John of Antioch, became uh, very well known because of his very careful exegesis, his unrelenting application, and his unmatched eloquence. He was given a nickname, uh, Christitum, which means uh, golden-mouthed. But here's his description of prayer. I, I was so impressed with it, I decided to just extract it. The potency of prayer has subdued the strength of fire. It has bridled the rage of lions. It has hushed anarchy to rest. It has extinguished wars, appeased the elements, expelled demons, burst the chains of death, expanded the fates of heaven, assuaged diseases, dispelled frauds, rescued cities from destruction, stayed the sun in its course, arrested the progress of the thunderbolt, there is in it uh, an all-sufficient panoply for a treasure undiminished, a mind that is never exhausted, a sky unobscured by clouds, a heaven unruffled by the storm. It is the root, the fountain, the mother of a thousand blessings. Fourth century writing. I'm impressed. Anyway, moving on. Verse 16. James continues, Confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And this also tends to echo back and confirm that the case that was earlier discussed is one of someone that was under church discipline, analogous to 1 Corinthians 5. By the way, Eusebius, um, in his writings, called James old camel knees. James was a man of prayer, so much so that uh, they called him camel knees, because presumably he had calluses on his knees. <laughs> what, a neat, what a nickname, huh? I love the bumper sticker. If you are accused of being a Christian, is there enough evidence to convict you? Anyway, verse 17. Elias, and by the way, that's simply the Greek for Elijah. Elijah was a man subject to like passions we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by a space of three years and six months. And by the way, I'm fascinated. You may recall in 1 Kings 17 and 18, in the interest of time, I won't take you through it, the, the shortness of the hour has spared you. I rarely miss an opportunity to recount the whole event on Mount Carmel and Elijah's big showdown with the priests of Baal. Dramatic stuff. I don't know how DeMille missed that one. It was a great one. Uh, what's interesting, of course, is that Elijah prophesied that it would not rain. He called a drought for three and a half years. At the end of that, he prays and the rain comes. Now, what's interesting about that, you will not learn about that, that precisely from the Old Testament. James here talks about it, and from James you discover that it was Elijah that caused the drought. Two people in the New Testament, Jesus and James, make reference to the three and a half years. And I think it's very interesting because it somehow got dropped out of the Old Testament. It talks about it, but you don't get the impression that Elijah started and stopped it and the three and a half years is clear. You get that from New Testament comments. This is one of the places where we learn something about the Old Testament from its recounting in the New. In Luke 4.25... 
when, the, when they're going to throw Jesus off the, uh, the brow of the hill, there's a whole thing about that that we don't have time for. Okay, we'll move on. Um, uh, see, in verse 18, he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. This is um, a very fascinating thing because in Revelation chapter 11, in verse 6, it speaks of the two witnesses. And everybody wonders who the two witnesses are. They're clearly people because they die and their bodies lay in the street. And they, you know, after three days, they, they, on CNN, the whole world watches them. they got a big scoop. But everybody wonders who they are. Well, if you study that passage carefully, there are four specific powers that these two witnesses have. Two of those powers are unique to Moses. And two of those powers are unique to Elijah. So I'm among those. doesn't mean I'm right, but just so you know, I'm one of these guys that believes, literally, Moses and Elijah are the two witnesses. Partly because one of those powers is to shut up the rain for three and a half years. And only one guy did that in the Old Testament. That's Elijah. And the other one is to call down fire from heaven. That's what Elijah did in, in, with the, uh, the situation about Mount Carmel. The other was it had to do with plagues and uh, turning water into blood, which, of course, Moses did in uh, Exodus 9, uh, 9, 10, and 11, right in that area. So the point is, that's, and I also suspect that the Mount of Transfiguration was a staff meeting planning all this. Anyway, it's a view. No, I'm sorry, yeah, okay. We're going to talk about the straying, the person that stray. The Old Testament term is a backsliding, but, uh, or New Testament overtaken with a fault, Galatians 6, 1, whatever. Verse 19, if, uh, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, now, the word err in the Greek is wander. The Greek is at planano, planano, which is the word from which we get planet, or heavenly wanderer. If Peter back there at Gethsemane had been praying instead of sleeping, he probably wouldn't have denied the Lord that night. Poor Peter, he's going to be known throughout eternity as the guy that denied the Lord. See, brethren, if you do err from the truth and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from error of his ways shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. By the way, do believers need to be converted? Jesus said to Peter, this is in Luke 22, verse 32, when thou art converted, strengthen the brethren. See, when you're back in fellowship, when you get it together, then, and you will, because I prayed for you, but, you know. How important it is that we seek to save, to, to win the saved? We don't think about that very much. Matthew eighteen fifteen. More if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go tell him his fault between thee and him alone, and he shall hear thee. Thou hast gained thy brother. The word gain means one, one your brother. Matthew 18, that's where you've got a fault with your brother. There's a procedure for that. It isn't to go run around and start a lot of gossip. It's to one-on-one hit it head-on. And love shall cover a multitude of sins. James mentioned this, and Peter does also in 1 Peter 4, 8. And they're simply applying the principle in Proverbs 10, 12, that love covers a multitude of sins. And here the application is to a straying brother in Christ. How much more do we need to do that to someone who's lost altogether? That's even more important. Seeking the lost, of course, is a frequent picture. We see it in Luke 15, where Jesus pictures lost sheep, a lost coin, lost son, and so on. In Zechariah 3, 2, and Jude 23, we have a different model. used with a soul winner's picture as a fireman pulling the brand out of the fire. It takes risks of love to do that. One little final exam, and we're through tonight. I'll just give you a few questions. This is a summary of the book of James. That's where the chapter's last one. Some questions for you to think about on your way home tonight. Am I becoming more and more patient in the testings of life? It's a question. You don't have to raise your hand. <laughs> Do I play with temptation or resist it from the start? Do I find joy in obeying the Word of God or do I merely study and learn it? Do I find joy in the obeying of the Word of God or do I just study and fill notebooks or whatever? Are there any prejudices that shackle me? 
Am I able to control my tongue? Am I a peacemaker or a troublemaker? Do people come to me for my spiritual wisdom? Am I a friend of God or a friend of the world? Can't be both. Do I make plans without considering the will of God? Am I selfish when it comes to money? Am I unfaithful in paying my bills? Do I naturally depend on prayer when I find myself in some kind of trouble? Or is prayer a last resort? It should be our first resort. Am I the kind of person that others seek for prayer support? And what's my attitude towards the wandering brother? Do I criticize and gossip? Or do I seek to restore him in love? A little test. That concludes our formal study, verse-by-verse study of the book of James. Next time... We're going to explore some strange heresies that are surfacing in our culture from the Shroud of Turin and how it relates to the Knights of Templar, the Knights Templar, I mean. And what does that have to do with James? Very, very strange stuff. Uh, We'll do that, address that next time as we conclude our study of Jacob's letter to the 12 tribes. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Well, Father, we thank you for this opportunity. We thank you, Father, that... There are no accidents in your kingdom that we're all here together right now by your divine appointment. We would ask, Father, that through your Holy Spirit, that you would help us to be ever more diligent in appropriating your word to our lives, that we indeed might be doers of your word and not hearers only. We do pray, Father, for improved bridling of our unruly tongues, but rather that they might be instruments for magnifying your name and declaring your truth. And Father, we do ask for enlightened stewardship of those resources that you've entrusted to us, that they indeed might be used for your glory, that we indeed might redeem the time that remains. We thank you, Father, for bringing us together, but we thank you above all, Father, for the redemption that you've gone to such extremes to provide for us as we commit ourselves in accordance with your commandments before your throne, in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of James. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android App Store or search K-House TV on your Roku streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.